have that, you can stand and I will read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We'll pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you again, God, for your instruction in our hearts and that we would, would yield, Lord, to what you have said and what your will is. Lord, that we would surrender our judgment on your word and, and yield, Lord, to what you have clearly said. We thank you that your ways are good and your will is always good, acceptable, and perfect. And so we ask God for just your understanding and, and wisdom as we look at your word together. In Christ's name, amen. Name seated. <clears throat> well, there is no um, um, fun way or pleasant way to talk about the subject of church discipline. And that's what this chapter is about. Discipline is, is not fun. Um, scripture speaks very plainly to that, that it's never fun, it's never enjoyable. And those of us that are parents know that that is not one of the highlights of being a parent, is having to discipline your children. But Solomon wrote in Proverbs that the father who loves his child disciplines him, and the one who does not discipline his child hates him. God doesn't hate us. He loves us. And the communion that we've just celebrated is, is a constant remembrance of his love for us. And that by the blood of Christ we have been purchased, and by the blood of Christ we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. We've already been told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 how serious carnality is in the church. 
that it can actually result in the destruction of the church. It's amazing if we take God's word for being true that we would not take more seriously sin in our midst. Sin has as its wages death. There are no exceptions to that. The wages of sin is death. Carnality, which is sin, will destroy the church. The one who is caught in a trespass is on the path to sin. James says the one who delivers him from his sin saves his soul from death. It's a very, very serious thing. And we also know that it is not um, an isolated thing. Sin is not of a nature that it has no impact upon anyone but the one who is sinning. So the mantra of the, of the world that sin is a private matter, what you do in the privacy of your own home has no impact upon anyone else is an absolute lie. All our choices impact everyone in our life. Good choices impact for good, and bad choices impact for bad. We will reap what we sow. There is a law of the harvest. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this shall he also reap. We are not islands. We are part of a community. We are relational. And we impact others with our behavior. So Paul writes, and he, um, again, he never questions the salvation of these people. And he does not question the salvation of the one that, he is, that he's focused on in this chapter. He's very clear that he believes that the Corinthians are saved, and that, in, and that also goes for the man that is living in a sinful lifestyle. But nonetheless, he's very surprised by what he hears. It is emphatic here how he's, how he's stating this in verse 1. It is actually reported, emphasis, that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Paul says, I am shocked. I am shocked. The Corinthian people, the Corinthian church, lived in the cesspool of Corinth. And Paul saying, I'm still shocked. There's no excuse. Just because you live in a cesspool doesn't mean you have to be, your church has to be a cesspool. There is no excuse. No matter how bad your society is, I think we can hear Paul say, Christ is in you. Christ has cleansed you. You are different from your society. You have been converted and delivered and saved from the world around you. So I'm shocked. Now Paul uses the word immorality here, which is the Greek word pornea. It's actually a pretty broad word. Usually, though, it has, um, <coughs> it's in reference to sexual sin. It can include adultery, but this is not adultery, whatever this man is doing, because Paul could have used that word. It's another Greek word, mokia. And Paul doesn't say that that's what this man is guilty of. He is guilty of sexual sin with his father's wife. He could have said mother if he had meant that, but that's not the case. So we would assume that this is not the man's biological mother. This would be his stepmother. And because he doesn't use the word 
for adultery, we can also assume that this man's father is dead. And this is a widow. And it is not unlikely that this man's father had married a woman who was quite a bit younger than himself. May have been his second wife. And he married young, a younger woman. And now the man has died, the father has died, and this Christian man has taken up with his young, widowed stepmother, who it would seem is not herself a Christian, because there's no reference to her being a part of this church. So this man is part of the church. The woman that he is with is not part of the church. And this man claims to be a Christian, and Paul never challenges that. What is the church's response to this? They know this. Paul knows this, that there is a man in the church who is involved sexually with his stepmother. Now, in the Old Testament, that kind of sexual relationship is defined as incest. Even though she is not a blood relative, she is a relative by marriage. And marriage is viewed as a blood covenant, not just a legal institution. But a blood covenant takes place when marriage is formed. And so even though this is a stepmother, for him to be involved with her, and even though she is likely a widow, he cannot even marry her if he would wish to do so. No sexual relations are permitted with this woman. It is incest. She is family. We are not under the law. But it is the law of Moses that defines incest. If the church were Israel, and it is not in my estimation, then not only would Paul be right to say this is incest and it is forbidden, but he could also say the man deserves to be executed. Because that is the law of Moses. This man deserves to be executed. But the church is not a nation, and it does not have the right to execute. So when the church exercises discipline, it will always be less than what the Old Testament calls for under the laws of a nation. What can you do when you are not the government, you are not a nation, what can you do to discipline another adult? All we can do is break fellowship, disassociate. That's all we can do. There's really nothing more that you can do to exercise discipline. And that's what Paul will be calling the church to do. For reasons we aren't given, they have not disassociated with this man. It would seem that they have become proud, not it seems, they have, they have become proud. Paul says so. You have become arrogant that how they have chosen to deal with this man is a display of arrogance. So I kind of think about that. And then again, we're kind of filling in some blanks here. And so I don't want to put words in Paul's mouth or assume too much. 
But I don't think this is too hard for us to figure out what's going on. They are people covered by the blood of Christ, as we are. Their sin has been forgiven and paid for, as, as ours has. Therefore, if it's all forgiven, Jesus has paid for it, then who are we to judge sin that has already been paid for? You can see the thinking, because it's all around us today. We are not to be judgmental, this church was probably saying. We are to be loving and offering grace, just as God has loved us and extended His grace to us. So the way to be Christ-like toward a sinning brother is to love him back to the Lord. After all, doesn't Paul himself say in Romans chapter 2, it is the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. So let's show kindness to this man and maybe see him come to repentance. And Paul says, wrong response. Categorically wrong. There's a church over in Kerrville um, that got a new pastor. This happened a few years ago. <coughs> and he didn't like the way the church was functioning. I don't know how long he'd been there, but he was long enough, there long enough to just feel like everything that he did got shot down by that church. Every good suggestion was put down. And so he renamed his church the First Church of Condemnation. And he put it out on the marquee, First Church of Condemnation. And it became, people started coming to the church because they wanted to know what a First Church of Condemnation was all about. And he, and he even it started, started kind of capitalizing on it. And in the movie theater in Kerrville, he used to run ads, you know, in front of the, you know, before the movie started. Come and visit the first church of condemnation where you'll be condemned like in no other church. And he was being sarcastic because he didn't like what was going on. Who wants to be known for condemnation? We'd rather be the grace church, right? We want to be known for grace. We listen, we see the, 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 Radio advertisements or TV advertisements, come and visit our church where everyone is welcomed. Come and visit our church and you will be welcomed as you are. Right? Grace. Love. We understand the sentiment behind that. But how does that fit with what Paul's saying here? There are exceptions. Love is unconditional, but acceptance is not. God loves this world unconditionally. But if we're going to be saved, there is a condition. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. There is a condition to being accepted. There is no condition to being loved. The proper response to sin is to mourn. It is to mourn. If we believe that sin leads to death and we see someone that is persisting in their sin, refusing to turn from their sin, it should grieve us, cause us to mourn like we're at a funeral. 
I've told the story that years and years ago, <coughs> when I was the program director at His Hill, and I'd come back from college in the summers and work at the camp. I, a lot of the discipline type of stuff fell on, on me, kind of just making sure things were running smoothly. And, and somebody came to me and they said, Charlie, we drove onto the property and we had a low water crossing at the time, and so the, the, the bridge was just right on the water, literally. And there was a nice pool that, that was dammed up there and, and people would swim in it. And somebody said, Charlie, I drove on the property as my headlight swung across the, the water. I saw two people skinny dipping out there in the river. Great. On our property. Skinny dipping out there at night. And so it fell to me to have to go and run them off. So I drove down there, put my headlights out on the, on the river, and I see two heads, like turtles, just kind of go down in the water a little bit. And so, uh, thankfully, they, they weren't exposed. But, you know, I got out of the car and I said, hey, are you guys skinny dipping? And the guy just gets lower in the water. And the girl um, starts talking. And she goes, we are. What are you going to do about it? We're not doing, breaking any laws. It's a public river. And I said, and public nudity is against the law. You need to leave. And I thought she was going to come out of the water and start arguing with me. <laughs> and so I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to come back in a few minutes, and if you're still here, my next phone call will be to the sheriff's department. And they left. And so I, I thought that was kind of humorous, and other people thought it was humorous, and I told the director of his hill what had happened. He didn't think it was humorous. He had a young daughter. And the first words out of his mouth were, that poor girl. That poor girl. And I have never forgotten that. As a dad who imagined that could be his daughter, it grieved him. Caused him to mourn. He's a man who took sin seriously. You have become arrogant. You've embraced the man. You've included the man. You continue to treat this man as though there is no problem. And Paul says that is arrogance. Because who defines sin? God defines sin. The church does not define sin. The world does not define sin. Government doesn't define sin. God defines sin. And when God says, this is sin, and I hate it, it cost the death of my son, his blood, to pay for this, and you act as though it is nothing. That is arrogance. Who do you think you are? That scares me. It is arrogance to accept what God condemns. It is arrogance to extend grace where God does not. When God, when I refuse to forgive someone of their sin, and God has forgiven, that is also arrogance, right? God has forgiven, and I refuse to forgive. Then I think I'm bigger than God. That is arrogance. And when I will not condemn what God condemns, that is arrogance. Connor read this morning from Romans 8, it's one of our favorite passages. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Absolutely true. 
But it is also true that our behavior can be worthy of condemnation. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul stood up to Peter and it says, Peter stood condemned because he was acting one way when he was with the Gentiles and another way when he was with the Jews and he was, and he was perverting the gospel by how he was acting. Peter stood condemned. Same man who said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I don't care if you judge me. I don't even judge myself. And now he's saying in chapter 5, I have judged this man and you should be judging him. But in chapter 4, he was specifically talking about motives. I don't judge my own motives. God is the one who judges motives. This is about behavior, sinful behavior. And when God calls it sin, and we don't, we are being arrogant. We are saying we know better than God does. You should have mourned in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Now you'll notice there's, the word church is not here. He does talk about your assembly <coughs> at one point here. But it seems broader than that, especially in the first part of this chapter, is that he is, he is among you, and he should be put out from among you. This seems to be broader than just when the church comes together on Sunday morning. And I believe that we can see that clearly toward the end in the last thing that he's going to say. Verse 3, I on my part, though absent from the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this. Paul's not afraid of using that word. The two primary passages in the Bible and the New Testament that seem to forbid judging are Matthew chapter 7 and then the epistle of James. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, do not judge one another, lest you also be judged. Take the speck, the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. You read that passage carefully. Jesus is not saying that it is wrong to judge. He is saying it is wrong to be hypocritical when you've got the same problem somebody else has and then you judge them. Stop it. Get the log out of your own eye first. When James says, do not judge. Behold the, ju- behold, the judge is standing right at the door. His point is, don't act like God. Don't take the place of God. We cannot judge whether another person is saved or not. Only God can judge the heart. Don't take the place of God. But when God says, when God has already made the judgment on sin, and we do not agree with God's judgment, That in itself is sin. It seems to be there is a worse sin than what this man was guilty of. And it's the sin of the church and what they're guilty of. The arrogance of not standing on what God has said. Judge sin. I on my part, though absent in the body, have already judged him. Look at verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... When you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, 
So that's, that's parenthetical. So, so really, you, it could be read, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Okay? So that's, that's the heart of this statement here. In the name of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus. And then in verse 5, those first three words are in italics in the New American Standard because they aren't in the original. I have decided. So read it without those three words, I have decided. In the name of our Lord Jesus, in the, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan. Isn't, I don't believe this is just Paul saying, I have delivered him to Satan. I believe this is Paul saying to the church, deliver him to Satan. This is the church's responsibility, not just Paul's. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. There is protection that we can't begin to comprehend how real it is. There is protection for the believer to be in association, right association, with the body of Christ. I don't understand that. None of us fully will. But there is true, genuine protection that comes to the believer who is living in right relationship with God and in right relationship with his church. We are kept safe in ways that we would not apart from those two relationships. Right relationship with God, right relationship with his body. And to not be in that kind of right relationship with his body puts us at risk. And ultimately, it could be at the risk of even losing our lives. There is a sense in which Satan is restrained from touching our lives when we are in right relationship with God and right relationship with his church. And when that is not there, it gives Satan a freedom to touch us that he would not otherwise have. And Paul seems to be saying, better to have Satan kill a person than to have him continue in his sin. That's pretty sobering. Better to die than to continue in your sin. That's what he's saying. Why? Because he could lose his salvation? No. Chapter 3, if everything is burned up and yet the foundation of Christ still remains. This is not about the potential that he could lose his salvation if he continues in sin. But there are things worse than death. And for a believer to continue in persistent, unrepentant sin is a state worse than death. Not only is it a state worse than, for death, worse than death for him, but the impact that it has upon the body of Christ is grave. Better for that man to die than to continue in his sin, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul isn't saying, I hate the man, treat the man as an enemy, and, and, and praying that he would be delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, if that's what it takes, he is praying for his good. He is not praying for his harm, he is praying for his good. But if it takes harm for his spirit to be preserved, then God preserve his spirit, whatever it takes. How many times we've heard parents that have been in that position with their kids? God, whatever it takes. 
I'm not going to pray anymore. Protect my children, God. Whatever it takes, deliver them from their sin. Bring them back to a relationship with you, whatever it takes. I believe that's what Paul's doing here. And then again, reference to their arrogance, your boasting is not good. What would they boast in? We've loved him. We've accepted him. We're not condemning him. Your boasting is not good. Just as clean, <clears throat> your boasting is not good, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now, you, we can boast in anything. We can even boast in being, in, in being a, a, you know, a people who exercise discipline, a people who don't put up with sin. So again, boasting is not just on the part of people who are, who are not condemning sin. We can boast because we do condemn sin, right? So there's error on both sides. But that little bit of leaven, and again, this is where Paul says the bigger concern here is not the brother who's sinning, but the bigger concern is the whole. And that little bit of leaven, even if he is the only person in the church, it will impact the entire church. You're deceived if you don't think that's true. We had a Bible school one year that the principal who was in charge of all the rules of one of the Torchbearer Bible schools, he retired. And so a new principal came in and he says, you know, we're just going to just go by the law of love. And we're not going to have any rules. We're just going to love each other. That's going to be the one rule, love one another. Regard others more highly than yourself. It didn't work very well. They had like 150, 160 students or something. And there were about 20 of them, something like that. I heard 20 or 30 of them that, that came smoking. And so they said, that's okay. We're just going to love you. No big deal. And again, it's not the cardinal sin to smoke or anything. But in the past, they had said, no, you're in Bible school. You're not going to smoke while you're in Bible school. Smoke when you leave, fine. But you're not going to smoke while you're in Bible school. Well, no more rules. Just love. And by the end of the year, I heard that over half those students had taken up smoking. They weren't smoking before they came to school, but they took it up while they were there. A little leaven, leavening the whole lump. That's a little thing, smoking. There's been times at his hill, very difficult, where we've had to ask someone to leave, and it's just been because of an attitude. Not because of anything else, just the attitude. Hadn't been about smoking, hadn't been about curfew. It's really just about the underlying attitude. And there comes a point you realize it begins to infect everybody. And you go, is it right that all of these people would be dragged down because of one person? It's not right. And if you love them, there comes a point when you have to say, you as an individual do not have the right to ruin this for everybody around you. I had a rotten tooth when I was a kid because I used to watch the cowboy movies and those movies aren't on TV anymore because I guess too many kids were doing what I was doing, but every so often you'd see a cowboy who would put a bottle in his mouth and just rip the lid off with his, with his teeth. 
And so we were doing that as kids. And, um, and we just put a Coke bottle in our mouth and just, just, just snapped the, the lid off. And so I didn't know it, but I'd cracked one of my molars. Now they were just baby teeth, but I'd cracked one of those molars. And the next time I went to the dentist, he was going, you've got a rotten tooth here. And, you know, and I knew exactly how that, you know, it was cracked, you know, well, I, you know, so I knew what had happened. And he said, we got to pull that thing out. No good de dentist would say, well, let's just leave it alone. It's just one tooth. That one rotten tooth can end up killing you if you leave it alone. Heart problems, all kinds of things. I remember my dentist is telling me, gingivitis, man, you leave that, if you don't, if you don't get that dealt with, you're just starting to get it. You don't get that dealt with. She's telling me this, my dental hygienist this past week. Stroke, heart disease, all these things. I'm going, oh, no, give me the floss, right? <laughs> just a little problem. So I've flossed three days in a row now, first time in my life. <laughs> a little leaven. We know this on, the, on our health, a little problem can end up destroying the, all our health. How much more spiritually? When we don't judge sin, we're saying, well, it's because all sin is the same. And yet when we start to judge it, we rationalize and say, well, it's just a little thing. Well, I thought it was all the same. Why are you calling it little? It's not all the same, folks. There is no place in the Bible that says all sin is the same. Now, 1 John says in one place, all sin is lawlessness. In another place, it says all sin is unrighteousness. But in the same place that it says all sin is unrighteousness, it says one sin will lead to death and another sin doesn't. And as Jack has been telling us in Sunday school, it seems to be talking about a premature death, physical death. It's not all the same. Jesus said to Pilate, the one who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. So some people would say, well, how, we're just going to judge sin in the church, and so who's going to come to church, right? You've heard that? Because we all sin. We all sin. But it isn't all the same. And there are some things that God has said. We've got to deal drastically with it. Have to. The whole health of the church is at stake. Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, verse 7, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. What's he saying? He says, Jesus made you clean from sin. Right? When you place your faith in Christ, you are made clean because the Passover lamb was given for you and his blood was shed that your sin would be forgiven. Why are you reintroducing sin? So in the Old Testament, when the first Passover was observed in Egypt, they, they took that lamb three days ahead of time, moved it into the house with them, grew to love the lamb, probably named the lamb, and then the fathers were supposed to kill the lamb and spread the blood all around the door. Just, just encompass the door on every side, top, bottom, sides with blood. And then... At the, when they went back into the house, they were to, to search out the leaven that was in the house and get it out of the house. So there could be no leaven even in the house when they went to eat that meal. 
Because then leaven is a picture of sin, and the blood has been applied, so there ought to be no sin. It's the same thing in the church. We have been cleansed from sin, so there ought to be no sin. Clean out the leaven, that you may be a new lump. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Malice and wickedness, how, why has he introduced that? In the context here, all I can think is he's not talking about malice against people. Maybe he's just saying, don't treat this brother with malice. That's not the issue. But when we do not, again, regard the cross of Jesus Christ for what it is, that God gave his son to die for our sin, it would seem, I think, that there's some sense in which we are treating the cross with malice. Malice and wickedness. Sin is wickedness. Malice, sin is malice against God and what he has done for us. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with covetous or, and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. Paul said, I never said, don't have anything to do with unbelievers who are sinning. Never said that. It's ridiculous. But I was talking to you about those who call themselves Christians. I actually wrote to you, verse 11, that you do not associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person. He's not saying, I doubt that he's saved. He's just saying, if he claims to be a Christian, then treat him like it. Sin does not take away the assurance of our salvation. But it does take away the evidence of our salvation. There's a difference between assurance of salvation and evidence of our salvation. The assurance of our salvation is not, ba- not based on the lack of sin or the assurance is not taken away because of the presence of sin. We are sure, we are certain of our salvation because of what the Word of God says. Place your faith in Jesus and you are saved. But the evidence of our salvation is a godly life. And this man is not demonstrating the evidence but that doesn't mean he isn't saved. We're all capable of anything. I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's not a comprehensive list. It's a big list, but it doesn't seem to have the tone of being comprehensive. Paul seems to be saying when there's a person who's living in unrepentant, defiant sin, whatever it would be. This is not a person you want to be associating with. In Proverbs, it says, if there's a person who's given to anger, you don't want to associate with him lest you become like him. Really, it's just common sense. Not even to eat with such a one. He's a brother. He's living this way. Don't eat with him. It's very, very sobering. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? 
God is the one who judges outsiders, the unbeliever, and then as clear as he could make it, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Wow. This is really a sermon for two Sundays, and we're already out of time. But I just want to summarize a few things here quickly. To associate means to be in relationship with. Don't associate with him. And then he gets very practical of what that would mean. Don't even eat with him. Because eating is a picture of fellowship. And this is what's helped me very much on this passage, on this whole topic of church discipline. But again, this is even if, even if the leadership of the church should not take action on a situation like this, we are not off the hook. This is written to laity, okay? not just to church leadership. When you know a Christian who is living in open, undefi- defiant, unrepentant sin, this applies to you. You should not be continuing in the same kind of relationship with him as you would with a person who is not living that way. I hope you understand this. The proper response to sin is to mourn. I've had my kids tell me, I'm not on Facebook, but they tell me that they they read of a Christian person, sometimes former Bible school student, who has come out on Facebook and announced that they are homosexual. And all of their friends on Facebook are responding and saying, we're proud of you, you've done a courageous thing, we're happy for you. They are celebrating his sin. And it's not our calling as a church to celebrate what God condemns. A young woman gets pregnant, she's not married, and the church has a difficult decision to make. Should we throw a baby shower for her like we would a married woman who is pregnant. And this church has always decided, absolutely yes. Because we will celebrate the life that God has given this young woman while trying to make sure we are not minimizing her sin. That's a difficult balance to to maintain. But we have to strive for it. She sinned. We will not celebrate her sin. But God has given her a baby. And that baby is a gift from God. And it is to be affirmed and celebrated. It's not always easy. The point here, I think, just very simply, we don't go to the extreme of acting as though sin is not sin and having no difference whatsoever in our relationship with that person. Neither do we go to the other extreme and say this person is to be treated like an unbeliever, an enemy, and we will have nothing to do with the person. You know why we don't go there? Because the truth of God's word is that for the Christian, his sin does not cancel out his salvation. It does not cancel his relationship with God. It does break his fellowship with God. This is 1 John chapter 1. And so the church is in that difficult position of having to find the balance between those two extremes. So how should your relationship change with a Christian who is living in open, unrepentant, defiant sin? I don't know. But I know this, it ought to change. It should not be completely severed because God does not sever us when we sin. That is not the right response to completely sever the relationship. 
I tend to think that this same person that Paul's talking about here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is mentioned in 2 Corinthians. Nobody can prove that, but it seems to be that. And in, chapter, in 2 Corinthians, that person, if it is the same person, is repentant. And Paul says, bring him back. How did Paul know he was repentant? Because the relationship was not completely severed. Somebody was keeping tabs on that man so that when he repented, they knew it's time to bring him back into the church. This kind of disassociation, breaking fellowship, was for the purpose of bringing about repentance. But if that didn't happen, the church is not in control of that. It was mainly about making sure that the church was preserved, that it not be destroyed because of the sin of this man infiltrating the rest of the church. We've got to find the balance. You do not act as though there is no problem. That is arrogance. Neither do you sever him as though he has lost his salvation. There is somewhere in between. And sometimes that means you may have to sit down with the person and tell them, I love you. This is going to be the last meal we have together. Why? Because in my mind, a meal, as in the mind of most people, is a, is a, is a picture that everything is good between us. Everything is right between us. And I have to tell you, it's not good. It's not right because of the way that you're living. And I'm concerned for you because this sin results in death. And I'm very concerned for you. But I also am concerned about the impact of your lifestyle could have upon me, upon my family, upon my church. And I cannot continue with you as I was before. I look forward to the day when we can fellowship again like we did formerly. Until that time, it will be different has to be different. There is a time for brothers not to associate. Brothers in Christ and maybe brothers within a family. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is clear and uncompromising. Sin is wickedness. And the person who is continuing in sin is a wicked man. Christians can be wicked people. He is to be removed. Because I don't want to stretch this, I'm going to take about five more minutes maybe. Stretch into another Sunday. The scripture gives these causes as grounds for disassociation, for breaking fellowship. Here, sexual immorality and the other things that are listed. But it's specifically defiant, open, unrepentant sin. Scripture also mentions in 2 Thessalonians, living an undisciplined life, refusal to work, refusal to obey. False teaching in 2 John chapter 10. In Romans 16, 17, those who cause divisions within a church and hindrances within a church unnecessarily. Violations of God's moral commandments, as we see here. And Matthew 18 speaks of unresolved relational sins, probably things like gossip and slander, slander and anger and abusive speech, and a person refuses to get those things resolved. The criteria, the guidelines, the person must be, a, must be a professing believer. He must be in association with this particular church. And the person must be knowingly and rebelliously disobedient. And the person must be disobeying the clear commands of Scripture. The purpose for this is to bring glory to God. It is for the purity and preservation of the church, and it is hopefully for the repentance and restoration of the sinner. Kindness does not always lead us to repentance. 
I wish it did. Sometimes, and most of the time, I think, what leads us to repentance is people dealing with us in truth and saying this has got to stop and the relationship is going to change until it does. Discipline and love are not opposites. In fact, they go together. If you love someone, you will discipline them. We must balance against cutting a person off altogether and at, or acting as though nothing is the problem. There is no problem. What about the potential fallout? People could leave a church when they see somebody disciplined. Yes, they could. The church could get potentially sued. Yes, it could. God's word takes priority. What about family members who are under church discipline? Or who should be under church discipline? Should we relate to our family, our physical, biological family, who are living in this kind of way, the same way we'd relate to somebody that comes to the church? It's a hard one, isn't it? If we're talking about adult children who call themselves Christians and they're living as Paul is describing here, I don't see Paul's making an exception. And when Jesus says, love me more than mother and father and brother and sister, and we put mother and father and brother and sister who are sinning gravely against Christ ahead of God's word concerning sin, I have problems personally with that. But I know it's extremely, extremely difficult. Again, it doesn't mean that we have to treat them as unbelievers. It doesn't mean that the relationship has to be severed. But it seems like, especially within the family, there ought to be that conversation that says, we are not going to act like there's not a problem when there is a problem. We have to walk in truth. Anything else is a lie. What about following the procedures of Matthew 18? Go to him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then let him be kicked out. Yes. Whenever possible, Matthew 18 should be followed. But guess what? Paul's not following it in 1 Corinthians 5. Is he? 1 Corinthians 5, there's no mention of going to him in private, taking two or three witnesses, take it before it says, get him out. Get him out. No Matthew 18. Same thing in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, Peter stood condemned and I confronted him to his face publicly. There are times when Matthew 18 should not be followed. That is clear in Scripture. The first one to exercise church discipline was God with Ananias and Sapphira. He set the precedent. And the church grew. And people held the church in high esteem. And they were afraid to put on pretenses and associate with them when they weren't serious about it. I believe this really, just to wind this up, to conclude it, this really all comes back again to taking seriously the cross of Jesus Christ, which is what this book has been about all up to this point. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for our sin. 
God doesn't tolerate sin. If he had, he would not have died for us. He died for us because he doesn't tolerate it. Who are we to tolerate what God condemns? I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, these are hard, sobering things. And we have no righteousness, Lord, to speak on these things or to act on these things of ourselves. None. We're not better than others. And we know, God, that there is nothing that we each individual are not capable of doing. So we must walk humbly with great caution. We would not rush into these things, Lord. We don't want to be quick to judge, nor do we want to be indifferent to what you have spoken so clearly on. Lord Jesus, we truly need you to live before you in sincerity and truth. And in our own personal lives, Lord, that the leaven would be rooted out. Because that's where it begins, God. Each of us individually, knowing that our sin has been paid for by the blood of Christ. And that we would not deal casually with what cost you everything. So I pray, God, that you would just begin with each of us personally and individually that we would be in agreement with you and what you say concerning our sin and that we would come to you again in confession and repentance for the cleansing that only you can give. In Jesus' name, amen.